Open up your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. You guys, in your study, you've been going over the last few months, you've been learning about the, the Corinth church, all right? You've been learning that they were behaving in every which way but righteously. You spent time looking at the divisions within the church, chapters one through four, saw the pride and boastfulness that Paul has condemned the church on. You read and studied about Paul's rebuke of the immoralities that were taking place as well. You see, Paul condemned that as well in, verse, uh, in chapters five through six. And, and these were detestable acts that the church had been doing. And so as we continue in this letter, in Paul's correction and condemnation of the Corinthian church, we find that Paul now finally arrives to addressing the concerns that the Corinthian congregation wrote to Paul about. One of those issues that the Corinthians wrote about to Paul was that of the subjects of marriage and singleness. There was a lack of fundamental understanding of what some people should have been exercising. And so Paul dedicates the entirety of this chapter to teach on those very subject matters, on marriage and singleness. So today we will cover the first portion of this chapter. So follow along with me as I read through 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse six, but this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to, be, to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who, ha who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? I've titled this lesson, marital matters, because in our study this morning, we're going to look at three responses that Paul gives to the Corinthian church regarding marital matters. He gives three responses to the Corinthian church regarding marital matters. Let's consider the first response that Paul gives, and it's that of celibacy versus intimacy, verses one through five. See, Paul is having to be very direct here as he spells out the rules of engagement for both the single person and the married couple as it pertains to sexual relations and purity in these verses. He begins by addressing the single person first. And he says here, in verse one, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, 
It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The first point Paul makes here is that celibacy is honorable. Celibacy is honorable. You see, in in this day and age uh, that this letter was written, the Jews of the ancient world, they believed it was dishonorable for a man or woman to remain single. Families who had children that remain unmarried, they felt like failures and even argued that to remain single was breaking God's law of Genesis 1, 28. You know that familiar verse. It, it, it was that Paul, or excuse me, the Lord gives a command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. The, the Jews of the ancient world believed that they were breaking the law, God's law, if they remained single. Now let's, let's think about this for a moment, okay? We know from the study of the previous chapters that there were there was a clear practice of immorality and perversion that had taken place in Corinth, which Paul rightfully rebukes, right? So with that in mind, there may have been groups that were making extreme cases for how to fix the sexual defilement that was active within Corinth. One assertion could have been that the reason there was sexual defilements taking place was that the Uh, due to the people being married. You know, their argument for resolving the issue is for all to remain single and and to not be married and have sexual intercourse. Uh, They believe that it was best to just abstain from those things because they perceived it as bad. Another assertion could have been that of the Jewish Christians within the church of Corinth who argued that to resolve the practice of immorality was for everyone to be married and have relations. You had two stark, extreme contrasts going on here that could have been argued within this church. You know, regardless of whatever was being argued in favor for, Paul says that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The word good that's used here means honorable, beautiful by reason of purity. Paul states that it's a noble thing for a person to remain single and to not engage in sexual intercourse. But why? Why would Paul write such a thing? Did not God proclaim in Genesis 2.18 that it's not good for the man to be alone and then proceed to make Eve as a suitable helper for Adam? Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Do you know the wonderful thing about God's word is that it does not contradict itself? No, in fact, the the truth is is that both of those statements are true. Both statements are factual. What Paul has said and what the Lord had given instruction to Adam and Eve. Paul states that it is good to remain celibate because of the times which they were living in were very troublesome. Look quickly quickly with me to the same chapter. Look at verse 25, 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Paul wrote this. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. He's saying, I'm validating myself here because I am a follower of the Lord. I'm speaking here on my own opinion. He says in verse 26, I think then that this is in good view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. The present distress. See, there was a great scrutiny that was happening to Christians that Paul called a present distress. It was honorable for those who remained single to commit more of their time and efforts into the work for the Lord. There was much to be done. You guys have looked at the history of the Corinth church and what was going on in those times Great persecution was upon Christians in the ancient world. And so Paul gives his two cents and says, it's best that you remain single so that we can do the work of the Lord. You have more time, you have more freedom to do those things. You see, Paul knew of the severe risks the mission field had. Remember, this is the guy who endured through some great afflictions in his lifetime, imprisonment beaten and stoned, shipwrecked, lack of food, deprived of sleep. Imagine had he had a wife 
with him through the suffering. It would have been devastating for him to see his spouse endure through what he was facing. And so he shares that it is honorable for one to remain in a state of singleness. You know, perhaps some of you here this morning have felt the pressures to be in a relationship. You know, maybe your friends or classmates, they, they urge you to date because no one should live their lives alone, right? Everyone should have somebody. No, Paul, Paul says it's, it's excellent and honorable to be single and it is beautiful to remain pure and celibate, not engaging in intercourse. It's a gift, as we'll see later in this chapter. But you see, just because celibacy is honorable and commendable, as Paul says, it does not make those who are single any more holier than those who are married. Paul continues with his response by shifting the focus from the singles within the church to now he's focusing on the married couples within the church by outlining next the covenant couples' responsibilities. Covenant couples' responsibilities in verses 2 through 5. And as we'll see, there's a, there's a pattern to which Paul establishes here in these verses by addressing the responsibilities of two people. He's going to address the Christian husband and the Christian wife. And here he gives six charges to the husband and six to the wife. So let's look at the first charge in verse 2. The first one, he says, each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. This first charge is that the the biblical model for marriage, which God has established, it's reserved for one man to one woman and one woman to one man. See, the relationship is, is monogamous, which means that the marriage and the bond of intercourse is between a husband and wife only. You know, unfortunately, at the time of this writing of this letter, the people of Corinth had dismissed somewhat of that model of marriage as husbands and wives were engaging in infidelity with others that were not their spouses. You know, the harsh reality is that that same sin is active in today's world that we live in. You know, I looked up a stat as I did this study, I looked up a stat on how many marriages ended in divorce due to infidelity, where a spouse was perhaps intimate with another who was not their spouse. And the statistic was somewhere between 35 to 50% end in divorce because of that reason. See, the covenant of marriage, it's a lifetime promise made not only between a, a husband and a wife, but it's made before the Lord God. And that covenantal promise is that a a husband will always be committed and devoted to his wife and a wife to her husband before the Lord. Within that covenantal responsibility to one another, we we see a second charge in verse three. And it's that of sexual obligation to one another. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. See, God's design for sexual relations was always intended for good, but it's only good within the context of a husband and a wife. And how do we know this? How do we know that Paul's just not making something up here? Well, think back to the day of creation in Genesis 1. This was before sin entered into the world. And, and listen what is captured in Genesis 1, and 28. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. Genesis 1, says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That establishes there's only two genders that God has established. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God gave the command for Adam and Eve, for husband and wife, and deemed it good for them to partake in that uh, beautiful gift. 
See, intercourse is, between a husband and wife is a good thing. And what Paul says is that to each, there is a responsibility for them to, for one to render pleasure to the other. You see, the world has perverted what sex should be. The world parades the idea that sex is about what I want, what fulfills my desires, what are my pleasures. That's why there are many in today's world and, and culture who affirm sexual sins of, of lust and pornography and homosexuality. It's running rampant because the world has perverted that idea of what God has made good. See, the reality is that the biblical model for sex is to render pleasure to your spouse, to seek to please their spouse. Listen, the, the primary objective of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is Christ-like giving. And that is why Paul says for each to fulfill their duties to one another and not abstain from the goodness that God has made. A third charge for the covenant couples is they are uh, authority over one another's bodies. Verse 4, continuing on that same subject, he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This continues to emphasize what was previously said in verse 3. There's a, an equal respect an obligation that each has to another. And so some of you are sitting here today uh, and, and you're, you're single and you're under, you're, you're under that same command as well. Just because you're not married right now, you're still under that same command today. And you might be asking, well, how? If I'm not married, how does this charge apply to me? You know, even if you're not married now, your body is reserved and to remain pure for your future husband or wife, if that's what the Lord God has willed for you. Do you realize that the sinful acts of intimacy outside of marriage or even sexual self-gratification, that robs your future spouse of receiving your gift of purity to them? It robs them. And so you, you're, you're called to, to live lives that are pure and reserved in the world that we live in, a world that, again, has perverted what God has made good. Paul continues on here with a fourth charge, and he says here, do not deprive your spouse, in beginning of verse 5. Now, he, he says this for both husband and wife. He says, stop depriving one another. Stop depriving one another. It's continuing on the same thoughts of verses 3 and 4. See, abstinence between a, a husband and wife is not normal. When both are in love with each other, they have a, a great pleasure and, and freedom to exercise intimacy with one another. But there are times when Married couples must pause with their intimacy, and, and that leads to this fifth charge that Paul gives in verse 5. It's that when it's appropriate to commit themselves to prayer. Commit to, Christian wives commit to praying for your husband, and Christian husbands commit yourself to praying for your wife. The text says, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. See, there are times when married couples live, uh, married couples' lives that uh, intimacy is not going to be practiced with one another for various reasons. However, it's a mutual understanding, Paul says. You know, there's times when a husband and wife perhaps are busy and, and, and things are chaotic in life, and so they, they, they abstain for, for a moment of intimacy. But it's, a, it's an agreement that happens between a husband and wife. 
When, when spouses can come to that agreement, they should commit their time towards the purpose of prayer, to find pleasure in calling upon the Lord's name for guidance and direction in one's life. It's an agreement for a time, meaning that married couples can abstain from those sexual pleasures with one another, but it's for only a, a temporary period. And the reason abstinence between a married couple cannot be permanent is because of the sixth charge that Paul gives at the end of verse 5, and it's so that spouses can avoid Satan's deceptions. So that they can avoid Satan's deceptions. It says to the husband, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It says the same thing for the Christian wives. See, one of Satan's greatest weapons that he uses to thwart believers is the temptation of sexual sins. You know, just talked briefly about in today's culture that the temptation is more blatantly accessible than it's ever been before. Sexual temptations are all over the place, everywhere we look. It's in social media. It's on TV, it's in movies, it's online, it's in your schools and at your jobs. And the point is that you really cannot walk anywhere these days without Satan trying to deceive and destroy that which God has made good between a husband and a wife. And so it's best, Paul says, for married couples to abstain from sexual relationships for, for, a t- for a time, but they must always return back to that conjugal obligation that each other has for one another because the one that lacks self-control in their marriage will often go find satisfaction somewhere else. If I'm not getting what I want, what I desire from my spouse, I'll just go find it from somewhere else. Paul says, no, fight against that temptation. Fight against that self-gratification. That's why Paul commands that spouses come together again. And so do you you see the pattern which Paul has laid out for us with these six charges? Look at that pattern. He does not say that some responsibilities are the husband's and, and different responsibilities are for the wife. No, he says that they are both the same, equal responsibilities to one another, to the Christian husband and and to the Christian wife. Do you think that's just by coincidence? Absolutely not. It was always God's plan and design for man and woman to be one. When a man and woman enter to a covenant of marriage, they become one flesh. With your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 2. Let's look at Genesis 2, beginning verse 21. Genesis 2, verse 21. For those of you, I can hear your pages flipping. It's beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place. The Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Verse 24, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh, equal responsibilities. But see, this world is not just made up of married couples, right? Now, Paul, Paul now gives his second response to the Corinthian saints, And that is towards the singles and the widows. 
Paul's response to the singles and the widows found in verses 6 through 9. Within the second response that Paul gives, he makes it clear that he is cognizant of each person's gift in verse 6 and 7. He's cognizant of each person's gift. He says, but this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Verse 6, Paul says that he has previously said about marriage in verses 2 through 5 are by way of confession or joint of opinion, but he goes on in verse 7 to say he wishes that all men were as himself was single. Paul was well aware that his singleness was a, was a grace gift and advocated for the brothers and sisters of Christ to remain the same way as he was, to remain single to live a life of singleness gave him freedoms and opportunity that allowed him to serve in the mission field that, that he did for faithfully many years. And he did not have the responsibility of a wife or, or children that he was able to offer more of himself for the work to proclaim the gospel. But he also understood that marriage was a gift. As well, and he, in, in verse seven, Paul identifies the source of each person's gift, whether marriage or singleness. He says that each person has a gift, and that person, the source of that gift, is from God. It is God who determines the state that you'll be in. God will determine if you will have a spouse one day. God has determined if you will be enabled and empowered to live a life of singleness. So if marriage or singleness is, is a gifting from God, who could argue against that gift? You know, some of you experience uh, this as much as I have, but around, you know, Christmas or birthdays, someone buys you a gift that's not necessarily something that you wanted or asked for, right? Especially Christmas, maybe you get a pair of socks and you're like, I've got like 100 pairs of socks. What do I need another pair of socks for, right? For me, that, was a, that gift was a, a blanket that looks like a pancake that my wife got me. My wife bought me this blanket that looks like a pancake. It's got the, the syrup and the butter and blueberries on the, on the, on the blanket. And, and I just thought it was really ridiculous. I was like, when am I ever going to use this thing? I thought, you know, I'll never use this blanket. I was ungrateful. And Ezra can vouch for me. I don't know where Ezra's over there. Ezra can vouch for me. That's one of my favorite blankets now. That thing is warm. I love pulling that thing out around this time of the year, you know, wrapping myself, watching some football. I look ridiculous, but I don't care. I'm in my house. The point is, is that when we receive what God has given to each person, we need not to complain. We need not to be bitter about the gift that God has given us. We need not to covet what others may have received from God. We're to be at peace and have hearts of gratitude if you're blessed with singleness or if, Lord willing, one day you're blessed with marriage. Don't covet what your friend may have. Man, my, I'm married, but my single friend, they're out serving across the nations. They're doing way more than I could have ever imagined, and I want that. No, Paul says, no, you, you've been gifted with what God has deemed fit for you in your life. Don't covet after what someone else has been given. He goes on to say, verse 8, it's called to remain celibate again. Paul's really trying to drive this home. He's really trying to plead his case for singleness. He says, it is honorable. You know, just, uh, he, he's just acknowledged that each person has their own gift in this, and in verse 8, he, he goes on by recommending again that singles and widows remain single because it is good. To remain single often has a, a negative stigma to it, especially as you mature in age. And what Paul wants you to understand is that it's honorable to be single. It shouldn't be frowned upon. He gives it a high praise because he himself saw the benefits of remaining single. 
as I previously stated, it allowed him freedoms to serve where the Lord had called him to serve. And for those of you who were, uh, those, for those who were uh, widows or had lost their spouses, Paul even highlights them here in verse 8. He tells the widows, he says, because he wanted to acknowledge that they were still useful in the ministry of the church. These widows who had lost their husbands or wives maybe felt like they didn't have any place to really be active and serve anymore. And Paul's saying, no, on the contrary, you have a place in the ministry of the church. Be faithful to serve our great God. And what is to happen if a widow who has lost her spouse still has sexual desires? If they still have a desire to be married after losing their husband or wife? Brings us to our next point. To concede to marriage if self-control lacks in verse 9. Paul says, but if they do not have self-control... Let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's not sinful for someone in a season of singleness to burn with passion. They desire to be married one day. But I, I want you to hear me clearly. I want you to listen to this. It is sinful to carry out those desires through any means other than what God has established as the outlet of which to exercise sexual pleasures, and that is within the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Anything exercised, any sexual desires fulfilled outside of that covenant that God has established is sin. It's sin. So how do you determine if you are gifted for marriage or singleness? It's a million-dollar question. How do you determine if you're gifted for singleness or marriage? There's a really great pastor, and he's a director of Christian counseling at the Reform Theological Seminary, Jim Neuheiser. He says this in a book. He says, um, which I'm glad he said this because I didn't have a response for you on that. So he says here in this, uh, quote, how in practical terms can people know whether they have the gift of singleness? Throughout the history of the church, many men and women like Paul remained single and were able to effectively serve the Lord. Scripture does not claim that people who are gifted to be single have no sexual desire and no interest in the close companionship that marriage offers. Instead, those who are gifted to be single can be content without being married and are able to keep sexual desires under control. To remain single or be married, it's a good gift from God. But those who are gifted with singleness, doesn't mean that you don't have that thought past your mind of, of, of a sexual desire. But it's not your focus. It's not what concerns you. No, you're, you're focused on what you're called to do. Whatever the Lord has laid forth as your path, you're focused on that. You have a self-control that he talks about. But again, to remain single or be married, it is a good gift that God has given. So Paul's responded to the matters of celibacy versus intimacy in verses one through five. He's also given his response to the singles and the widows in verses six through nine. And now he arrives to his final response that we'll cover this morning, and it's the matter of divorce, matter of divorce, verses 10 through 16. And within this matter, Paul gives three truths regarding the subject of divorce. The first truth that he gives, it's an exhortation from God to remain in matrimony. Paul's outline here is uh, that God has command that there be no divorce between Christian husbands and Christian wives. Look at the opening of verse 10. It says, there are, these are not Paul's opinions, as he notes. They are divine orders given by the Lord himself. And notice as Paul uses the same pattern arrangement of equal commands that he used earlier in this text, he, he's using the same pattern to address the Christian husband and Christian wife. He says to Christian wives, he says that 
the wife should not leave her husband. And to the Christian husband, he says, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, it's unclear what may have been going on in, in Corinth that led to Paul needing to address this matter. Perhaps Christian married couples were getting divorced or were headed towards divorce because of difference of opinions. You know, maybe a husband wanted a, a boat and the wife didn't. So he wanted a divorce because he wanted to really get that boat. Or maybe the, the wife went out to get new furniture for the house and the husband didn't want the new furniture. And so the wife said, well, I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to get the new furniture anyway. You know, or perhaps they were rooting for different teams, you know. Maybe one was going for the Astros and the other for the Rangers. I doubt that, but you get the, you get the point, right? Paul is saying there's no reason for divorce. There's no reasons for divorce between a Christian husband, Christian wife. Now, there's an instance when the forbiddance of divorce is negated, and it's when adultery is committed by a spouse, as we'll see more on this later on. But whatever the reason was, Paul is saying that God has forbidden divorce between Christian couples. Divorce violates that covenantal contract that believers made before God on the day of their wedding day. And Paul continues in verse 11. He says uh, in verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Now here, the, the, this command is directed towards the wife in this verse, but it applies equally to the husband as well. If a Christian spouse separates from their Christian spouse, they're not free to just go and marry someone else. They're still bound to that covenantal agreement made before God and witnesses on their wedding day. Can't just up and leave and run away. I'll just try again with somebody else. Maybe the next person will give me what I want. No, that's selfish, not Christ-like. It goes on to say, but do not divorce, but reconcile or else be reconciled to her husband. You know, some of you sit here today may have experienced this with your parents. Perhaps they've separated for a time due to tensions being high between the two. You know, if they both proclaim Christ as their savior, they should be seeking reconciliation for one another. There's hope for that marriage if they hold true to the truth of God in their lives. Because we have the greatest display of that reconciliation, don't we? Through Christ, who reconciled us to himself. You know, one of the attributes that tends to lack within Christian couples is, the, at the center, the, the attribute that tends to lack in a Christian couple is Christ-like humility. Christ-like humility. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 5. Verse 22, he said to the wise, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. But he also says to the husbands in Ephesians 5, 24, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up to her. Christian husbands and wives are to remain in matrimony. But now Paul gives his own exhortation, which is not from the instruction of the Lord. He's given us what the exhortation from God was about matrimony, but now Paul wants to give his own exhortation towards that matter. So the verses 12 through 14 is the exhortation from Paul to remain in matrimony. This command is for couples that had married as maybe perhaps unbelievers and maybe one of the spouses has become saved in that time. And so one of them is a believer and the other one is not a believer. He says in uh, verse 12, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And he says to the, to the women, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband 
and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Paul says they're they're to remain married. They're not to divorce. They're to strive for reconciliation as much as possible. However, it can be very difficult for a believing spouse to resolve issues with an unbelieving spouse because, again, they're not equally yoked. They're not equally yoked. Nonetheless, they're they're called to remain together for the purpose of consecrating their spouse and consecrating their children. He says, consecrate your unbelieving wife to the Christian husbands and consecrate your unbelieving husband to the Christian wives. When one of the spouses is a believer, the Lord uses their faithful life to testify of the work of God. See, the fruit of the Spirit is displayed to the unbelieving spouse. That gentleness, that kindness, that self-control is on display through the believer in that relationship. See, the Apostle Peter wrote a similar instruction to Christian husbands and wives who had unbelieving spouses. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. The Apostle Peter wrote this instruction, beginning in verse 1. This instruction is to the believing wife with an unbelieving husband. He says in verse 1, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, meaning if they're not a follower of Christ, basically, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your unbelieving husband, he's saying, will see that Christ-like display in your life, how you live unto them. But he doesn't just address the wives, he addresses the husbands next. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. Now go back to 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. Not only is the believing spouse a testimony of the grace of God to the unbelieving husband or wife, but they serve as a testimony unto their children. I grew up in a household where this was on display. My father is not a believer, but my mother was. My mother was a devoted Christian and had the privilege to witness firsthand what that testimony of Christ's likeness looked like through my mother. You know, through her faithfulness to, to humble herself before my father, to, to, to drag me and my sister to church, to take the time out of her day to read me the Bible and expose me to the truth of the scriptures. That was one of the many components that the Lord used to lead me to salvation because of her faithfulness. You know, the unfortunate truth is because married couples like my parents are unequally yoked, there are instances where divorce is admissible. So that brings us to our last truth given. And it's exonerated, uh, exonerated for remaining um, exonerated from remaining in abandoned matrimony. He's saying to the believers, he's saying you're exonerated from remaining in an abandoned matrimony in verses 15 through 16. See, if an unbelieving husband or wife wants to leave, Paul says here in the text, he says, let them leave. If they initiate the divorce, Paul says the believing spouse is nullified from that covenantal agreement of marriage with the unbelieving spouse. Let them go. They want the world. Let them go have the world. But don't get me wrong. Christian spouses in that marriage 
They, they should make every effort to reconcile. They should do everything they can to reconcile with that husband or wife without forfeiting their spiritual beliefs and, and morals. However, there are instances where the unbelieving spouse no longer wants to be bound to what is righteous and true. You know, I know you've been trying to drag me to church, but I, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I'm gone. I'm leaving. Paul says, let them leave. But I want us to understand the importance of a husband and a wife having union with Christ. You know, it's important for you. If, you, if your heart desires one day to be married, look for the believer. If you're a believer, look for the believer. Look for the person that is Christ-like, that is displaying that Christ-like humility. That's the attraction that you should have, not by what they wear or how they look or, man, that person's really good at this or that. Those are, those are good things, but what should attract you to someone is how they walk with Christ. Are they walking a life that is worthy of the gospel that has saved them? And are you doing the same? Are you attracting that person that you so desire? Are you walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel that has saved you? You know, for men and women today who are in Christ and have a desire to be married one day, do not compromise your faith and purity for the sake of being in a relationship with someone who is not a Christian. Non-believer could never give a spouse biblical counsel because they do not have discernment. They don't have sound wisdom, which comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek out that man or woman that models the life of Christ. So maybe you sit here as an unbeliever in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've yet to repent from your sins and, and selfish desires and turn to him. Know that Christ has given himself at the cross to be reconciled with you. Marriage is the picture of Christ's love for his people, is it not? Repent from your sins and Turn to the bridegroom who waits patiently for you and wants you to be reconciled to himself. You know, I know a majority of what we've covered today pertains to marriage, but how can you apply this text today in your life of singleness? How can you apply this text in your life of singleness today? Well, by way of application, let's look at a few things. The first is that in your season of singleness, purify your heart and renew your mind with the word of God. Purify your mind, or purify your heart and renew your mind with the word of God. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says this, how, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is, uh, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Second application point, if you have a desire to be married, Begin preparing yourself to lead or submit to a godly spouse. Begin to walk in a way that would be attracting that other person. You know, you, you have an opportunity to, today in your season of singleness to start practicing good spiritual disciplines. Because again, if that godly spouse is out there that God has has providentially put for you, they're looking for that. And again, you're not doing those things so that you can attract someone of the opposite sex. No, you're doing that because it's pleasing to the Lord. Third application point, if you're gifted for singleness, perhaps marriage is not something you desire or want. If you're gifted for singleness, commit yourselves to serving the Lord with your time. 
Get busy working unto the Lord. Don't sit around and wait, wondering what's going to happen next. You all have the freedoms today to serve in a number of ministries as singles today. You, you can do that by serving in Awana, serving in the nursery, AV, campus care. There's a number of ministries we have available today that you can commit yourselves to serving in. You know, it's another thing that I've seen people do, and I, some of you are, are probably in here that have done this, serving to help clean yards or homes for the elderly or those who are unable to do those things at their, at their homes. That's a way you can serve the body of Christ. The last point is Christ the Lamb is coming for his bride, the church. Make yourselves ready for his return. See, whether you're destined for singleness or, or marriage, maybe continue to strive on this earth to do the will of God and to always give him glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, grateful for your word, grateful for these truths that Paul has shared, Lord, so timeless and, and still effective today and our lives. Lord, I just pray for each of these young men and women, Lord, for whatever it is that you've placed for them, whatever giftedness you've given them, Lord, that they would receive that gift, Lord, humbly and would commit themselves, Lord, to give you all the praise and honor in their life, that they would live lives that are Christ-like and, Lord, that they would be a testimony to a dark and dying world. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your son, Christ, who lived a life of perfection, Lord, and went to the cross and bore all of our sins, Lord, and give his, gives, gives us his righteous robes, Lord, and takes on our, our dirty rags. Lord, I, I am so grateful for the life of Christ, for his resurrection and giving us new life. Lord, we, may we just continue to strive to live worthy of the gospel which you have saved us with. We thank you for this time together this morning. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.